Hello and welcome to episode two of this podcast, Our Chance of Becoming Human. Today I am broadcasting from the Vox Luminous Stationery Cupboard, which was the only quietish space that I could find to record. So prepare yourself for interruptions if anyone needs a pen or a print stick, or for the noise of me flailing around to try and get the attention of the light sensor when the lights automatically switch off, just to set the scene in this glamorous life. So this podcast is charting the journey of discovery that I'm on through pursuing a PhD that has lots of different strands, looking particularly at the integration of refugees and asylum seekers and the reintegration of people coming out of prison and from other forms of punishment. And within that, exploring what place collaborative music making might have in that process. There's also a strand um, of my research that's about language and translation and communication that might help us to better understand what music could do in the context of integration. So in the last episode, we challenged the cliche of things being lost in translation, and we started to wonder about what might be found in translation. We thought about the value of what Alison Phipps calls linguistic incompetence and the vulnerability of making art collaboratively the attentiveness and the presence that that demands of us, and what some of the rewards might be. We also thought about integration and translation as bridges of in-between spaces, and how such spaces have been represented in literature and film, and what metaphors we might find that could help us explore these interstitial spaces. If you've not heard the first episode, you could start there, but you don't have to. After all, as we're discovering, there is definitely value in taking a non-linear approach. Sometimes that reveals new connections and juxtapositions that we haven't thought about before. This episode is going to take us from dialogue theory to storytelling to 7th century BC Greek poet Sappho to narrative therapy to integration to Bactine and polyphony, with some musical interludes as well. So get the kettle on and enjoy listening. So the more I read and ponder this PhD process, the more I realise that the value of what I'm doing is in these in-between spaces. I'm never going to be an expert in all things relating to criminology or refugee integration or popular musicology or translation or applied linguistics. But I believe that these disciplines have things to say to each other. And it's this dialogue that I'm trying to bring to the foreground. So let's start by thinking a bit more about dialogue. It turns out there's a lot more to it than just people talking to each other. Dr. Oliver Escobar is a leading figure in the world of dialogue theory, and he sheds some light on this by looking at the etymology, the origins of various forms of communication. So take the word debate. The first bit, D, means down, and the other bit comes from battre, to beat. So it literally means to beat down or to fight. Discuss comes from the Latin dis, which means apart, and quateri, to shake. So it means to shake apart or to break apart. So these terms have kind of violent origins. Then there's dialogue, where the dia bit means through, between or across, and logos means word, speech or meaning. So Escobar defines dialogue as the flow of meaning, which is interesting on two counts, partly partly because it takes us back to the idea of in-between spaces as a place to find meaning, and partly also because it implies a relationship. If there's a flow of meaning between you and me, then there is a relationship there. Escobar draws on a number of scholars to enhance this definition including Mikhail Bakhtin, who posits that the nature of human life is dialogic and relational, and that ourselves and our social worlds are made up of multiple voices that constantly shape each other. Philosopher Hans-Jörg Gadamer says that knowledge is co-created in conversation, and that in dialogue the exchange of ideas is mutually transformative and enhances understanding of ourselves and of others. 
So this is probably why I'm actually making these podcasts, because the kind of research I'm doing is fundamentally about communication. And I want to get a dialogue going between different academic disciplines and then between the emerging ideas and the wider world. If we accept the position that knowledge is co-created in dialogue and that it has the potential to be mutually transformative, then that goes a little way towards explaining the value of collaborative songwriting, both as a source of knowledge in itself and as a process that can be genuinely transformative for its participants, as is my experience. American psychologist Carl Rogers talks about dialogue requiring unconditional positive regard of the other. Unconditional positive regard. Looking for the best in each other. It's the opposite of the kind of polarised interactions that you see on Twitter between political factions or different sides of debates on gender or race or sexuality. Dialogue is not afraid to explore differences and conflict, though. But dialogue theory helps us to approach conflict in a way that finds common ground and that helps us to suspend all the assumptions that we have about the other. Another key element of dialogue theory is the emphasis that it places on storytelling. It values storytelling because that's something that everyone does. In pretty much every language and culture, we are hardwired to love a good story and to tell stories. And this universality makes it a form that everyone can access, regardless of age or education or background. Some of the best stories are told by three-year-olds, after all. So valuing the story is an approach that favours equality. There's a funny thing about stories, though. It's what Nigerian novelist Chimanda Ngozi Adichie calls the danger of the single story. She has a TED talk with that title, and you should totally watch it. In it, she talks about the many narratives and perspectives that make up each one of us human creatures. Stories that are complex and often contradictory. She warns us of flattening anyone's existence to just one story, which is exactly what happens when we label people as the refugee or the offender. She tells us that the single story creates stereotypes. And the problem with stereotypes is not that they are untrue, but that they are incomplete. They make one story the only story. And the single story robs us of our dignity, emphasises how we are different, instead of how we are similar. In the context of Vox Luminous, an arts organisation that equips people in and around the criminal justice system with tools to express themselves through music and art, this quote rings so true. The Distant Voices Project runs short, intensive songwriting sessions in prisons and in community settings. And I've seen a special magic happen in these sessions, where when we share stories with one another, we become the well-rounded, three-dimensional, complicated, perplexing, magnificent human beings that we really are. We shed the labels of prisoner or criminologist or musician. We shed the labels of class and accent and clothes and race and education or whatever. And together we become more human. There's a research project called Conflict, Memory and Displacement, which I'll tell you more about later. But it talks about the way that migrants are required by services to present themselves as deserving victims. And that this leads to them being stereotyped and boxed as tellers of sad stories. The same is often true of people in prison, particularly women in prison, the vast majority of whom have experienced some form of trauma. So I'd like to read you some lyrics from a woman called Roberta, who participated in one of these songwriting sessions while she was on day release from Greenock Prison. She worked with my colleague and friend Donna Machocha, who is a songwriting supremo, to write a song called Oh There and a Little Bit Mare. Now the story behind the song is indeed a sad one. 
Roberta wanted to write a song for her mother, who had been diagnosed with vascular dementia, and she was worried that by the time she was released, her mother might not know who she was anymore. But the song that she and Donna wrote together was reflecting on scenes and memories from her childhood, and it shades in so much colour and life that we're not in any way listening to a teller of sad stories. The song draws pictures in your mind and makes it relatable. You can almost see the steam rising in a busy kitchen. Here are a few lines from a couple of the verses. If you were a day, you'd be Saturday, busy in the kitchen, pie and peas, having a blether about the week, lentil soup and sponge and tea. If you were a season, you'd be spring, out in the garden potting seeds, painting your doorstep four times a year, pruning the roses and chasing the weeds. The central line of the chorus of the song is you're all there and a little bit mere. And I love the defiance in that. There's a sense that the writer isn't going to let go of her mum to dementia that easily. There's so much substance in these memories that they become a tool with which to hold on to her mother even as she slips away. The song ends on an outro that says, I hope to see you soon with a smile upon your face and a moan into the bargain and a moan into the bargain. And even that wee couple of lines brings a wry smile to your face and it makes the figure of the mother and daughter and their relationship more complex and ultimately more human. While we're on songwriting, let's rewind to the 7th century BC and to Sappho, a Greek poet and musician who incidentally is credited with inventing the plectrum. She was pretty prolific. It's thought that she composed around 10,000 lines of poetry, but most of that is now lost, and what survives is in the form of fragments. Canadian poet and professor Anne Carson has translated everything that remains of Sappho's writing in a book called If Not Winter. She uses blank space and brackets to suggest torn or burned scraps of papyrus, and she says in her introduction that brackets imply a free space of imaginal adventure. Critic and classicist Emily Wilson, the same Emily Wilson who was the first woman to translate Homer's Odyssey, as we talked about in the last podcast, she suggests that Carson loves the spaces almost as much as the words. So we're back at that recurring theme of in-between spaces. As a wee experiment, I've taken three of these fragments from Sappho via Anne Carson and put them to music. In doing so, I've tried to respect the space as well as the words as represented in Carson's text. My own songwriting practice often uses fairly conventional song structures, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, middle eight, chorus, and so on. So it was really liberating to get to play with these fragments that have very little symmetry about them. Here is the first one.
Another reason I'm enjoying working with these fragments is their ambiguity. Professor Abdul Sattar Awad Ibrahim from the University of Baghdad says this. Ambiguity in a poem makes the reader try to search for or unfold what possibilities he or she can think of in relation to the thing described or referred to, as the reader is not satisfied with what he or she reads, trying to find relationships and associations among things. That is why a poem showing ambiguity will always have freshness and life, for it is born anew every time it is read or touched upon. Of course, all art forms are open to the interpretations that the viewer, listener or reader brings to them. But poetry in general makes you work harder. And Carson's translation of Sappho in particular leaves a lot of this free space of imaginal adventure. When we do collaborative songwriting projects, we need to try to help people tell their own many faceted stories with all the grey areas and in-between spaces and space for interpretation that that entails because maybe the in-between space and the ambiguity is part of what humanises people's stories and makes it possible for us to relate to each other. And maybe through collating ambiguous fragments of people's stories, we do more to respect the complexity and nuance and contradictions of human existence. I went to an event last month called Oral Histories of Immigration Detention, organised by Gramnet, the Glasgow Refugee and Migrant Network. It brought together activists, academics, artists and people with lived experience of immigration detention to think about how we listen to and retell the testimonies of detainees. It raised some really interesting tensions in how people's stories are used. For example, that sometimes a researcher might want to uncover something that a detainee prefers not to talk about, or a detainee might want to tell a story that complicates the message of an activist's campaign. How do we go about recording and retelling these narratives? Andre Dow was at the event. He's the co-founder of an Australian organisation called Behind the Wire. Behind the Wire is an oral history project that documents people's experience of immigration detention. Dow spoke about how the mainstream media presents dual toxic narratives of detainees as either dangerous or passive. And he explained how Behind the Wire works to counter these toxic narratives and to humanise their narrators. They undertake long, in-depth interviews with current and former detainees. And in giving space for their stories, they also make sure that there is space to talk about the political as well as the personal. Presenting their stories in their historical and political context and making the perpetrators visible. Because after all, says Dow, detention is not something that just happens. The stories generated are shared in a range of ways. The project has published a book which is beautifully titled They Cannot Take the Sky, as well as podcasts, exhibitions, videos and events. A lot of reflection and a lot of respect has clearly gone into this project and it's a great example of how to create a platform for people to tell their own stories in a way that gives space for the mess and complexity and context of human existence. However, there was another quote from this event that has stayed with me as a warning flag since then. One researcher who has been involved in international activism around migration and detention told us that one participant in a colleague's colleague's research had told them, everybody wants my story and nothing changes for me. Everybody wants my story and nothing changes for me. Let's have another fragment of Sappho while we think about that. To give yet of the glorious, of the beautiful and good. 
fill for my thinking. Not thus is arranged, nor all night long I am aware of evil doing. Earlier on, I mentioned a project called Conflict, Memory and Displacement. It's an academic project that brings together academics from media studies, migration studies, interdisciplinary peace studies and arts practice-based research, along with community organisations, to explore things like how the media inform our understanding of conflicts, human displacement and political institutions, how displaced people memorialise conflict from afar, and how creative methods can be used to articulate alternative accounts of conflicts and the asylum process. It's a really interesting project and some of their research findings are fascinating and highlight how important behind the wires approach is in terms of putting stories of migration and detention in their proper historical and political context. The project found, and I quote this from their findings, that mainstream media coverage offers almost no route to understanding histories of empire as a factor in contemporary conflicts and the management of human displacement. The project talks about labelling and finds that people are made into migrants by the government, the media and members of society. In other words, that label of migrant is constructed actively as a means of erasing other identities, a sense of being other, of being illegitimate and undeserving, lie at the core of this identity. A bit of sunshine in this otherwise sobering reading comes from another research finding. says that faith, music, comedy, self-organisation and knowledge of history can be important resources in challenging injustice and dehumanisation. These concerns with labelling and identity are absolutely central in the integration process, both in the context of migrants and of people with experience of the criminal justice system. Michelle Brown, who's a sociologist at the University of Tennessee, wrote a paper on visual criminology and carceral studies. She says that actors in carceral contexts and the people who organise with them seek to find strategies of representation that humanise and politicise their existence. She highlights how important it is to open up this creative space where we can cultivate ways of seeing that are usually erased in what she calls the neoliberal discourses that drive law, politics, the media and prisons. Her focus here is on visual criminology, so she talks about counter-images, images that challenge the stereotypes and the single stories. She talks about visually attuned criminology, 
And this includes attention to the problems of theory and ethics and social responsibilities that come with the production and analysis of images. But we could expand this concept to talk about an orally attuned criminology that pays attention to sound and narrative as presented in song. Counter melodies, perhaps. So a lot of strands are coming together here. We've got Ngozi Adichie's assertion that many stories matter, and it makes more and more sense as we consider how powerful the forces are that flatten and depoliticise the existence of people in prison systems, in immigration detention, in conflict zones and in refugee camps, to a single story. Sappho's fragments give us a lens through which to consider how the ambiguity and the nuance of the poetic can be crucial here. Considering in-between spaces, the contradictions, the importance of dialogical approaches and the translation process can all be brought to the foreground here as useful tools, as well as the value of the arts encountering the ever-present forces of dehumanisation. After the last podcast where I mentioned that I was going off to explore the ethics of sharing people's stories, a good friend got in touch. She is a clinical psychologist working with the NHS Psychological Trauma Service in Glasgow, which incorporates the mental health liaison service for asylum seekers and refugees. She sent me off on a trail of investigation around the theme of narrative therapy. I'm going to quote bits of her email. I'm sure she won't mind. In relation to the ethics of sharing of stories, I have found the narrative therapy work around practices of outsider witnessing really helpful. The outsider witness response is a way of helping to make stories thicker and richer in the space between the teller and the one witnessing, whilst maintaining ethical practices of witnessing stories, to ensure that those who are at the centre of the stories remain at the centre. The person or people witnessing the story respond by saying what resonated with them in the story, and why, so that their response is also located in the particular of their own story, what image that resonance brought to mind and where the witnessing has taken them i.e. what new learning or insight they now have. The ones at the centre of the story then respond in the same way, getting a chance to reflect on what difference their story has made to the witness, what resonated in the retelling of it, and so on, so that both the stories of the teller and the story of the witness are joined, and the stories of both teller and witness become thicker and richer in the connection. What a beautiful thing! We're back to dialogue again, but more than just dialogue between two people, this is dialogue between two stories that enriches both in the telling and the retelling. So I went off and did some reading about narrative therapy. In particular, I read a brilliant paper by Jean Combs and Jill Friedman called Narrative, Post-Structuralism and Social Justice. There's so much in this paper that I'd love to share with you, but I'm going to try to pick out a handful of particularly salient points. They start with the philosophy that underpins narrative therapy. So in psychology, a structuralist approach would look for universal truths and posits that every system has a definite, discoverable structure. So as such, it assumes that people are entities with essential, stable characteristics. By contrast, a post-structuralist approach focuses on contextualised meaning-making. It explores culture and language and discourse and how they contribute to the experience and identity of people in their context. This philosophical shift means that narrative therapists can conceptualise problems as separate from people and not as part of some kind of static and standardised system that makes up a human life. As you might guess from the name, narrative therapists are all about stories and they see people's experiences of problems as being shaped by stories, which are constructions. They recognise their clients as the authors of their own stories and rather than imposing their own interpretation of their clients' stories, the clients themselves do the interpreting. 
Combs and Friedman posit that when people consult with a therapist, they are usually caught up in rather thin stories that only tell a handful of their many life experiences. Stories that they have told themselves or have been told about themselves. So they use what they call the narrative metaphor to enrich the narratives of people's lives, giving them their many stories, and as such enabling them to find openings into alternative stories. Once they identify an event that lies outside the problematic storyline, narrative therapists can ask questions that help their clients to step into that event, to talk about what it means, and to build it into a more colourful and detailed story. Over time, as multiple storylines develop, the authors begin to see multiple possibilities for their lives. And while the original problem doesn't just disappear, it does lose significance in the context of this richer tapestry of stories. This approach strikes me as so simple and so brilliant and an incredibly useful tool to take into the context of collaborative songwriting. On a side note, I suppose that this interaction is also another example of dialogue that enriches. My friend listened to my thoughts in the first podcast and then responded with her own, which meant that I was able to reflect on a new area that I wouldn't otherwise have come across. I'd love to encourage you, if you're listening and any of this connects with what you work with or what you study or what you make or even a wee stray thought or idea that you once had, please do get in touch and maybe we can find some shared resonances that might help us both. These approaches from narrative theory can help us better understand the integration process. There's a great paper by Professor Fergus McNeil and Dr Steve Kirkwood that compares the frameworks and theory around the integration of refugees and asylum seekers and the reintegration of people with convictions. The academic theories around these two processes have developed more or less in isolation from one another, despite many similarities in the processes and the types of marginalisation that both groups face. The authors note that the labels of asylum seeker or ex-offender could be understood as what Goffman calls spoiled identities. They talk about the importance of self-narratives, and McNeil notes how criminologists are developing a broader interest in the self-narratives of people with convictions. McNeil draws on the work of Maruna and Farrell to suggest that there may be two aspects of desistance, the process by which people move away from crime. Primary desistance, the achievement of an offence-free period, and secondary desistance, an underlying change in self-identity. They talk about how objective measures of integration around education, employment, housing and so on are insufficient measures of how integrated people actually feel. They stress the importance of feelings of belonging that reinforce a change in self-narrative and a new, more positive identity. And they talk about the value of when these new self-narratives are reflected back by other members of society. So we're back to dialogue again. This process of having positive identities reflected back is fundamentally dialogical. This is something that my office mate, Sarah Anderson, has written about in her fascinating paper on the value of bearing witness to desistance. Sarah is near completion of a PhD that explores the relationship between recovery from complex trauma and desistance from offending. And in her paper, she talks about how the voices of people who have offended are silenced and their own experiences of victimisation or structural violence are written out. She suggests that what Naif calls being present and being with another enacts a moral responsibility to support a transition from object to subject and to recognise and endorse the humanity of those who have committed crimes. The paper goes on to explore different dimensions of bearing witness. In addressing the epistemological dimension, Sarah talks about how 
Writers on bearing witness to trauma emphasise that trauma and recovery narratives are not conveyed fully formed. In the act of telling, they become known, not just to the listener, but to the teller, both of whom are together engaged in what Blackwell calls a pursuit of truth within a human relationship. I find this quote really interesting from the point of view of what we've been nudging at around telling fragments of complex narratives through song. The paper also discusses the performative dimension of bearing witness. So, through the act of telling a recovery narrative, recovery itself is being performed. The performance and its acceptance by whoever is bearing witness re-establishes connections with others. The continued acceptance of the performance over time by others initiates or furthers the person's own belief in the sincerity of their performance. And the role that is performed of the trauma survivor then becomes increasingly incorporated into their own personal identity. So we're back at positive shifts in identity again. And another interesting parallel in this paper is that it raises the political dimension of bearing witness, like the Behind the Wire oral history project, like Michelle Brown's visually attuned criminology. Sarah Anderson highlights the importance of bearing witness as a political act, seeing this personal interaction in its wider socio-political context. Okay, I have to tell you, I have a massive mind map full of doodles and arrows and things that I'm learning. And to be honest, we've only covered about half of the gems that I've been magpieing out from different disciplines. But I think I'm going to have to hold some thoughts back for the next episode. There's more to come about exploring integration processes in more depth, about rituals, about hospitality, about vocal philosophy, about participatory research and more. I'm particularly excited about Italian feminist philosopher Adriana Cavarero right now, so she will be featuring in the next episode too. Thanks for listening this far. In a moment, I'll play you the last of my fragments of Sappho for now. But first, I just want to finish with a quote from Mikhail Bakhtin. Bakhtin was a Russian scholar who developed the concept of polyphony in his analysis of Dostoevsky's fiction. I love this idea because it combines the musical concept of polyphony as a metaphor for the many stories that we've been thinking about in a concept that is fundamental to dialogue theory. In Bakhtin's view of language, it's as if every word holds a polyphony of voices. He writes this, Each word tastes of the context and contexts in which it has lived its socially charged life. I'm going to let Sappho have the last word. Thank you so much for listening. Day. Mm-hmm.